Father in heaven, that is our prayer. Father, that no matter what comes our way, no matter what it is that we may face, you would continue to be our vision. God, that you would light a light unto our feet, that you would show us what steps to take and how to take them. God, that we would never turn our eyes off of you and never lose focus. God, we're grateful. And Father, that you are truly the ruler of all, that you are sovereign over all things that we face, God, and may you hold the highest seat in our hearts. May we submit to none other, may we look to no other, may you forever be our vision, our hope, as you lead us home. We thank you for a living and active word that can continue to encourage and strengthen and point us to the directions that we need to go. Father, we ask that as we open it now, it would once again do its work, that it would touch our hearts, our minds, and our souls, and lead us into the life everlasting. We thank you for this moment, God, and we entrust it to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <clears throat> well, how are you doing, church? How's everybody holding in? Uh, we're probably, what, maybe, gosh, a little more than a week into this disruption, as I've been referring to it, this new way of living. And I wonder where you are mentally, emotionally, spiritually at this point in this process. If you're like me, there's probably been a bit of a progression that you've gone through over the last week or so. Uh, for me, the, the first kind of thing was shock, right? It was this sense of kind of just trying to grasp everything that was taking place. And even though we could kind of anticipate it because of what we were seeing across the world, there was this reality that when it came here and we started hearing about sporting events being canceled and music festivals being canceled, there was this shock of, of trying to figure out what, what is happening. And, and in that moment, I just tried to gather as much information as possible. I was looking for the latest update, the latest notification, the latest closure, and, and the news just kept coming in, and schools were being closed, and businesses were being told for people to work remotely, and you just kept thinking, how is, how is this happening? Right? Is that shock? Are, are we, it, was, it was like just very difficult to comprehend. And in the midst of that, the next phase was to kind of transition into this moment of adaptation. Right, okay, now, now we need to adapt. We need to prepare for a new norm. And so we've got to figure out what's it like to work from home or, or have kids or be confined to our apartment. Let's go to the grocery store, right? We're, we're having all these different responses and these reactions to try to adapt to all these things that we're trying to comprehend. And my hope is that as we've adapted over this last week, that many of us along the way have been reminded of some of the simplicities in life and some of the other blessings that we've had a chance to experience, right? That that you've been reminded of, of how meaningful it can be to spend time with family, that you're being reminded of, of how great it is to not have your schedule filled with so many activities or to go on walks in the day. There's no doubt that hopefully we're seeing these glimmers of blessings along the way. But I also anticipate, and, and kind of what I've sensed over the last few days, is this new phase that we are entering into, or maybe are already have entered into, which is now we begin to ask ourselves, how long is this really going to last? Right? Is the news going to just continue to get discouraging and get worse? How much longer are we really going to have to endure this? And that's a troubling question because it's in those questions that a lot of times the worry sets in, the concerns set in, the anxiety, the, the sense of do we have what it takes? And, and that can become a very daunting question. And I sense that's where many of us are in society and probably personally. 
And that's really kind of what I want us to focus in on with today's message, is that if that's you or if that's us, I'm sure it's been us at some point and will continue to be us as these days unfold, is when we have those questions, how much further do we have to go? How much longer do we have to go? Do we have what it takes that we can take the moment that we have this morning to remind ourselves of what it means to persevere, right? what it means to press on? And so I'm, I'm curious if you have moments in your own life where you've faced something, either physically, emotionally, spiritually, where you've had to ask that question, do I, do I have what it takes? How much longer am I going to have to go through this? And you've had to learn what it means to persevere. Uh, I think we, we encounter these examples in life on, a, on the wide spectrum of situations. I was thinking of a trivial example in my own life that reminded me my first year serving as a missions pastor at First Arlington. My goal in that first year was to go on all these mission trips that the church was committed to, and so I would often hear stories from folks about what each trip was like, and the stories that were the most legendary uh, were the ones that were associated with Costa Rica. And the reason they were the most legendary is because Costa Rica was easily the most primitive effort in context that we would uh, basically work in and minister to. It was uh, an area that was south of San Jose, this Talamanca region, where we would have to hike into the jungles of Costa Rica, stay in the rainforest, and work amongst an indigenous group of people known as the Quebecar. And the Quebecar people, they didn't really have homes. They had these kind of wood frame shelters, if you could even call it that. And so we would bring tents we, we would camp out, we would cook our own food. I mean, it was easily the most rugged and most primitive experience of any of the trips that the church was involved in, and that's why the stories were so legendary. And as I would hear these stories, I was introduced to a phrase that maybe I've shared with you before, um, but I'll remind you of it again today, that this phrase, the Quebecar shame. Let me explain to you Quebecar shame. My first time that I went there, we, we show up, we're doing a dental clinic in the rainforest of the Quebecar people, and we get ready for this hike, and so you've got your, your packs that's filled with your tents, your camping gear, all this different stuff, and it's easily 40, 50 pounds, if not more. You, you've got these boots that come up to your knees because you're in the rainforest, and so a lot of the terrain is muddy, and you sink into the mud, and you're also worried about snakes that can get you, and so you want to protect your legs, and, and you're just going through this daunting physical task just trying to get to the campsite. And at some point along the way, on my first journey up to the campsite, all of a sudden, this little 10-year-old Quebecar boy comes scooting past me, holding this huge duffel bag of dental equipment, moving at twice the speed right around me without shoes, right? That's Quebecar shame. It's ultimately a tremendous dose of humility, right? And, and probably the most notable experience of Quebecar shame that I remember from my time in Costa Rica happened a couple years later when I returned to this region with four or five of the other guys on staff. It was an all-guys trip. And so here we are, four to five grown men, and we reach this part of this trail where we have to go across a river. And I don't mean like the river's at our ankles. I'm talking it's at our thighs and up to our waist, and we've got our packs on and all this other stuff, and it's got a pretty strong and steady current. And so we're, we're fairly concerned about being swept away by it. So we link arms, and we're just like, scooching across the river at slow a pace as possible, trying to make sure that we don't slip and fall. <clears throat> and in the midst of us going across the river, literally we're like halfway across when we look downstream and we notice this Quebecar woman who is moving at twice the speed that we are across the river, holding a baby and breastfeeding at the same time. And that was the ultimate experience of Quebecar shame. It was a constant reminder that they could do things that we couldn't. And so on my first trip there, 
I remember talking with Pastor Pablo, who is kind of our main coordinator, and he said, hey, who wants to go on a hike? And, and having never been there, and he wanted to show us the region, me and several others said, well, yeah, we'll go. And, and we asked, well, how long will this hike be? And he said, 45 minutes. Well, 45 minutes, we can handle that. I looked at this bottle of water that I had. It was about halfway filled, and I said, that should be enough for 45 minutes. Little did I know that though I've had all these experiences reminding me that the Quebecar folks can move at twice the speed that we can, that I needed a conversion system that at 45 minutes in Quebecar time is very different than 45 minutes in an American time, and that a 45-minute hike was really going to be about two to two and a half hours long. I was completely unprepared, and it was one of the most miserable hikes of my life. I remember being in the midst of it, and I'd run out of water, and I was so dehydrated that it started to rain, thankfully, because we were in the rainforest. And I did the whole move where I'm like opening up my mouth, you know, trying to catch rain just to do anything to rehydrate myself. We were so miserable. We were so desperate. We looked at each other and we would ask Pastor Pablo, how much longer before we're back home? And he'd shrug his shoulders and go, about 45 minutes. And so it was completely deflating and discouraging through, through most of it. And part of what made it so discouraging was we had no idea how long it was really going to last. And it was so taxing physically, emotionally, in, in so many different ways. And it was one of those things that really tested our resolve and our perseverance, the opportunity to say, do we have what it takes? And the only thing we could think to do in that moment was to turn to each other and encourage one another and say, just keep moving, right? One step at a time gets us one step closer to where we need to be. And we finally did arrive back at our campsite, and it was an incredible sense of relaxation and joy and peace. But it took perseverance to get there. That's where we are. I, I get this sense that we're in this journey and we're thinking, how much longer are we going to have to climb this mountain? How much further do we have to go? And we get news, but we don't really know if, if what we're being told is really how long it's going to take. Nobody really knows. And so we have to look at each other and encourage one another to persevere, to just keep moving. Now, the challenge with this, and the reason I'm taking some time to explain this on the front end, is that if we're going to <clears throat> find this perseverance, we want to do so with the right frame of mind. We want to do so with the right perspective. We don't want to do so in a discouraging mindset, but in an encouraging mindset. Uh, Matt Bowen, <clears throat> our minister of worship, has this picture in his office that he and I talk about pretty regularly. I brought a slide of it today, and it's this picture of this mouse climbing up this mountain, and he's pulling a, an elephant. And at the bottom of the picture, it says, where there's a will, there's a way. And we often joke about this picture and refer to it in a lot of different contexts and, and think about what it means. And, and I was thinking about this picture recently in preparation for this message today, and I started thinking about how one of the questions is, what is the mentality that this mouse has in the midst of this journey? Is this mouse discouraged or encouraged? Right? And I think there's a lot of things that can discourage us in, this, in a journey as well as encourage us. And a lot of it is just perspective, mentality, right? If, if the mouse is carrying this discouraging perspective, they're probably looking down back on the valley. And when, when that mouse looks down and sees how far of a fall it could be, it could create a sense of fear. Oh my gosh, if I make a mistake, look how far this would fall. Look how bad this would hurt. Look how desperate it would be if we fell that much further. Or maybe the mouse looks up and can't see the summit and thinks, I don't know if I have the energy to keep going. I'm too tired. I'm too exhausted, right? And, and there's this constant sense of being discouraged. Or maybe, maybe this 
this mouse looks back down the mountain and thinks, man, look how far I've come. Right, look, look how far we've made it. Look at what we've been able to get out of. Look at that darkened valley that we're no longer in. Or maybe he looks up and no, he can't see the summit, thinks to himself, with every step, I'm a step closer. I'm going to keep on moving. That's the mentality that I want us to have. That's the mentality that I believe we see challenged in, and encouraged in us in the passage that we're going to look at today. That we would have an opportunity to embrace this uncertain season and encourage one another saying, hey, take one more step. Let's keep moving. But, but let's do so by looking back and truly remembering how far we've come and knowing that though we may not see the summit, one step at a time gets us closer to where we need to be. And if we do that well, we're going to discover that God is creating an artistry with our lives, right? He is creating this incredible piece of work with our stories that will ultimately point to his incomparable grace. And that's what we want to focus on this morning. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We started this series in Ephesians a couple of weeks ago, and it's, it's to complement the season of Lent. I know that businesses are closed and all these different things are closed right now. You can't close Easter and you never will be able to. And so I don't want us to lose sight of the fact that <clears throat> we are journeying to the cross. And, and there are several ways that we're trying to do that as a church family. One is through your Lenten devotionals. We want to encourage you to continue to go through those day after day. If you are a guest or you're a visitor joining us today, you can download, download our Lenten devotional guides and start going through those on a daily basis. And it's a wonderful way for us to look at the Gospel of Luke and, and remind ourselves of what Jesus has done. And the central question that we're asking is, am I truly following Jesus? Is my life actually centered on the Gospel? Is His power evident in my life? And that's something that we've started doing a couple of weeks ago with the season of Lent. But we've complemented that journey on our Sunday morning uh, time together by looking at Ephesians, asking the same question. Is my life centered on the gospel? Am I truly following Jesus? Is his power really evident in my life? But using the text in Ephesians to complement those questions that we're seeing also in our devotional guides and in Luke. And so several weeks ago, we started with an introduction, looking at who the letter was to, who it was from, talking about this tone that Paul sets at the onset of this, this tone of grace and peace. And then we talked about this opening blessing, this, this Jewish prayer of blessing that was known as a barakah, because it starts with the, that opening phrase, praise be to God. That, that's how he starts this letter. And in that early part of chapter 1, he reminds us of all these blessings that we have. And what makes this prayer unique is that it focuses on Jesus Christ. Right? And so the, the main invitation or the main question that Paul is really trying to ask his readers at the beginning of this letter is, do you truly recognize what God has done for you in Christ Jesus? And he reminds us of those blessings. And then last week, we had this very timely reminder of this prayer that Paul offers at the end of chapter 1 and how appropriate it is for us in this point of time, right? That as we go through this journey and as we're climbing up this mountain, that what people would hear of us, both as individuals and as the church, would be of our faith in Jesus Christ and our love for God's people, right? That we would be grateful for each other, we'd remember each other in our prayers, that we would ask for wisdom as we try to make decisions, that that we would be able to go through this journey and actually know God better, right? that he would open our hearts to a greater understanding of his glorious riches, that the hope that we have in Christ, that he would open the eyes of our heart to his incomparable power that we have 
in Christ Jesus our Lord. That, that's our prayer for this season. And so with all that as a backdrop, we now see a shift in chapter 2 that reminds us of essentially the fundamental message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So if you have your Bibles, follow along with me in Ephesians chapter 2, reading verses 1 through 10. <clears throat> as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. <clears throat> but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. <clears throat> what a wonderful passage. And, and there's really kind of a <clears throat> threefold progression that I want us to focus in on this morning. What Paul does is he, he really kind of forces us to look back and to see where we've come, and then reminds us what God has done in order to lead us to, now here's where we're going to go. And, and that's more or less the progression I want us to briefly consider this morning. And, and that first step is not an easy one, right? To stop and to look back, essentially down in that valley, to look back down the mountain and to consider where we were is, is not easy. In fact, in many ways, it's kind of discouraging. And I know you're sitting there thinking, well, now, wait a second. <laughs> in a time where we're getting discouraging headline after discouraging headline, I, I need good news. But the point in us, at least considering what Paul is bringing to our attention in this moment, is in order for us to appreciate just how good news, how good the good news really is, right? If, if we don't stop and consider how dark the valley was, it's hard for us to appreciate the beauty of the summit that we're seeking. And so there is value in remembering where we were, and that's where Paul begins. And it's a very powerful beginning. He says, you were dead. You were dead in your sins and your transgressions. Those two words work collectively to, to give this comprehensive understanding that your thoughts, your, your actions, your emotions, everything about you, it, it was dead. Right? And, and this death is not a physical death that's going to happen later in your life. It's, it's not a, a death that might happen on the day of judgment. This is a real, present reality that the most vital part of your existence, your soul, your spirit was disconnected from the most vital part of existence, which was God. Right? There is the separation, and we were dead. Now, that word literally means to be lifeless. To, to be ineffective. Imagine a corpse. Imagine that sort of ineffectiveness, that sort of powerlessness that exists. That's where we were. And in, and in some ways, I think we can kind of identify with just how challenging that can be, how, how difficult it is to embrace that truth, but to be reminded of what it really feels, means to feel powerless in our current situation. I mean, think about what this pandemic has done to society. I mean, literally, it has rendered businesses and places and gatherings useless. 
right? It's shut them down. It's, it's, it's ineffective for you to convene and gather anymore. It, it's, it's impacting even how we relate to one another, right? The physical distances that we, should we actually encounter somebody or we go to the store, or we get some, like the other day I took my dog to the vet and they were having all the clients stay outside and wearing masks and gloves and we were maintaining, maintaining this distance and I could almost see it in their eyes, right? They're concerned about me, close a concern about getting close to me and, and me about them. We, we're kind of all carrying this question in the back of our minds right now. Does that person have it? Are they contagious? And, and so I need to keep my distance. And we're having all of life almost grinding to a halt. And all of it's being rendered ineffective. And these moves that we're making are really us trying to deal with the fact that we're somewhat powerless. We, we have no control in many ways over this situation. And that's a very difficult reality and a very difficult feeling to be in. And that's part of what we see in the valley, right? We were dead. We were useless. We were ineffective. We were powerless. We needed rescue. Now, what, what was life in the valley like? Paul describes it, right? Here in the valley, you followed the ways of the world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air. That, that's what you did. And again, this terminology is drawing us all back to this idea of power, right? The words for uh, ways, world, ruler, kingdom, they all carry a connotation of power and authority, right? We followed a different way. And that way taught us to gratify our own cravings, our own desires, our own wishes, right? That life in the valley was ultimately a life of self-preservation, of self-gratification, where we put ourselves as the ultimate authority, right? It kind of reminds us of what we saw take place in the garden, right? The great temptation that led to brokenness was that temptation that said, no, you won't die, you'll be like God. You get to decide what you want. You get to decide good and evil, right and wrong, what your dreams are, your purpose, your ambitions. You don't need God, and it created that separation. And that's what leads us to this self gratifying, self-indulgent, self-preserving way of life. And so what it creates is a life of disobedience, right? That's, that's the way that we followed a, a life that leads us away from God, leads us away from our creator. It leads to a life of disobedience that is ultimately deserving of wrath, right? Maybe another way to think about it comes from Proverbs chapter 16. I, I love this proverb. It says, there is a way that seems right to mankind, but in the end it leads to death. Right? So one of the most chilling things that we see in scriptures is that we can be living a life in the valley and not even realize it. Right? It seems good because it's self-gratifying. It seems right because it's self-preservation. And we start following these ways, but in reality, it's an act of disobedience that ultimately leads to death. That's where we were. Let me try to spell this out as clearly as I can, church. There is a virus and an illness that is far greater than the one that's being covered on the news, right? There, there is a condition and a sickness that we don't have to look to our neighbor and wonder if they have it. We all have it. And its impact and its effect on us is far greater and far more troubling than any pandemic that we can encounter today. And that is the condition of sin, brokenness. 
right? In fact, this pandemic just reminds us of how broken this world really is. Even when this pandemic goes away, brokenness is still going to exist, be it in the form of corruption, be it in the form of greed, be it in the form of war, be it in the form of lust, whatever it is, we're still going to deal with this broken world and these broken hearts, these broken souls that ultimately just remind us that we need rescue. That's where our fear needs to be, right? If we walk through this season worried about a pandemic, worried about an economic collapse, that is misplaced fear. The greater tragedy, the greater concern is how do we make sense of a broken world and broken lives that are constantly looking for a place of rescue. We were dead. And that is the valley. And we have to look back on it. We have to remember it. And just in the midst of that bad news, that difficulty, is where we find a breath of hope, right? We find this incredible transition that comes with just two simple words that Paul doesn't leave us in the valley, but he reminds us that there is hope by these two simple words, but God. (laughs) Amen. That's where we were, but God. God, he is at work. He refuses to leave us in the valley. Now, one of the things that we have to recognize is that when we find ourselves struggling with understanding brokenness in this world, when we find ourselves in that valley of darkness, we often question the existence and the nature of God. And I'm sure that for many of you, you've gone through that at some point recently, and if you haven't, maybe you will, right? It's to me, natural questions. Where is God in all this? And if he's out there, why is he letting this happen? Right? It's natural that when we become overwhelmed with the broken state of our existence in this world to question God's existence and his nature. And so Paul redirects the focus and reminds us not only of his existence, but of his nature that God, because of his great love for us and the richness of his mercy, that's who our God is. If you find yourself needing a reminder, not only of his presence, but of his nature, we find it in this text that God has a great love for you and he is rich in mercy. And so he refuses to leave us in that state. This idea of mercy is connected to this Hebrew word, Hesed that we see in the Old Testament that speaks of God's loyal love. It is that reminder that God never leaves and never forsakes us. He is with us in the midst of this broken world. He has great love. He is rich in mercy. And I'm sure that though you get that reminder this morning, the question still somewhat remains. That sounds good, Jeremiah. I see that it says that, but man, it doesn't feel that way. Right, to, to be facing what our world is facing, to deal with this uncertainty. If he does love, if he is merciful, then how do I experience it? How do I know it? And that's the main emphasis that Paul points us to in these verses. You want the assurance of his love. You want the assurance of his mercy. Look at what God has done. This is where you were. Here's what he has done. God, because of his great love and his richness and his mercy, has made you alive. That's the good news. 
That's the simplicity of these 10 verses. That's the simplicity of the gospel itself. You were dead. God has made you alive. That is the good news that we cling to. That's the hope that becomes the foundation of every season and every circumstance. And just when we think that news can't get any better, it does. Not only has God made us alive, but he has raised us up. He has seated us in the heavenly realms with Christ Jesus. What Paul is doing is creating this incredible picture of intimacy that we have with Jesus Christ. Everything that Paul pointed to in chapter 1, right, that Christ was made alive, that he was raised from the dead, that he was seated in the heavenly realms, Paul is now explaining those very same things have been done for you. You have been made alive. You've been raised up. You've been seated in the heavenly realms. This is the gospel at its very core. We live in this broken world trying to make sense of this darkened valley, completely helpless, completely powerless, but God, who is rich in love, looked on us in that state and said, I'm going to save them. And so he comes and dwells among us in the person of Jesus who experiences that same pain, that same suffering, and says, let me show you the way out. Come and follow me. He shows us true compassion. He shows us what it really means to love. He shows us what truth really looks like, and we are invited to follow him. And what is so remarkable about this plan of rescue is that the wrath that we deserved, the death that we deserved, was fully absorbed in the cross. That when Jesus gave his life, the punishment that you and I deserved was laid upon his shoulders, and by his blood and by his wounds, we were healed. And not only that, but after he was laid in the tomb and three days later came back to life, we have this verdict, we have this declaration that the tomb has been emptied of its power, that we have now been made alive, that not just made alive, but we can have the hope of the resurrection to be raised up and ultimately seated with God in the heavenly realms. That's what he's accomplished for each of us. This is the plan of rescue. This is the saving that he has offered. And so let me explain this to you, church. There is nothing that can take that away. There is nothing. There there is no manifestation of brokenness, no financial collapse, no pandemic, no loss of job, no loss of health. There is nothing that can ever take away that hope from your life. We have been saved, and that can never change. Nothing separates us from the love of Christ. And so when we stop for a moment in the midst of negative headlines and discouraging news, Let's take a moment and look back down in the valley and realize what God has done, right? That he has given us a greater healing and a greater rescue than we could have ever imagined, and nothing can take that away. Now, how has he accomplished it? How how has it been offered to us except by grace? It's only by grace. And I love how Paul describes this grace in this passage, right? Grace is essentially a gift, right? And and part of the reason we need to recognize this gift is because it eliminates any form of pride or boasting or any sort of tendency to say that we have earned it or deserve credit for it. You ever been in a situation where somebody has taken credit for a gift that they've received, right? A birthday or Christmas party. I, I have 
uh, in one or two situations, it's been somewhat comical to see somebody open a gift that they themselves would say, oh, thank you so much, honey, but then you quickly realize that they're the ones that actually found it online, ordered it, had it delivered, wrapped it, and even signed the card. Um, and, and you sit there and you watch that unfold and you think, well, that undermines the whole notion of a gift, right? A gift, there's nothing that you are responsible for. It is, it is something that you only receive. And that's what this rescue plan looks like. It's only through grace. <clears throat> it's nothing we earn. It's nothing we can achieve. It is a gift that God has put before us. But it must be received. And it can only be received through faith. I wonder how many of you maybe are still walking through that valley. That maybe you're tuning in today because this whole new crisis, this new reality has caused questions. And you've realized, man, I I need to find hope. And you're given this story of Jesus a try. And you've been walking through this valley. And what's really required of you is to understand the gift that has been given through Christ Jesus, and that all you have to do is receive it. That takes faith. It it takes this moment of saying, I'm going to choose to turn from this desire towards self-gratification, self-preservation, following the ways of this world, and I'm going to choose to reveal God as the power in my life. I'm going to choose to follow Him. That's what faith looks like. It's trust. And for those of us that have received that gift in the past, we need to hold tightly to it now and never lose sight of what it means to trust God in all situations. This is what God has done. He has given us this gift, and we need to maintain that unwavering faith to treasure it in the manner that it deserves to be treasured. Now, let me close with this. Where does it lead? Right? Why has God done this? Well, part of what we see here in this passage is that, is that Paul has given us, or God has given us this free gift so that in the ages to come, right, he would be able to demonstrate and show the incomparable riches of his grace, the kindness that is shown to us in Christ Jesus. Paul is talking about you and me, right? This letter is written thousands of years ago, and he's explaining to the church, listen, for generation to generation, This message of hope is going to be passed down and people are going to be able to share it and proclaim it and live it out so that others around them can see the incomparable riches of his grace. That is the opportunity that you and I have. Listen, many people will go through life, many generations will go through existence never having an opportunity to disclose and declare what it is they really believe to really emulate for the world to see what it is that they truly find hope in. But you and I have been given that chance, that we have this opportunity, this this season of uncertainty to carry ourselves in such a way that points others to the incomparable riches of His grace. And that's the task that that has, has been laid before us. See, ultimately what Paul reminds us of is that grace calls us to work. Let me be very clear. We don't work for grace. We don't work to earn grace. We work because of grace. Right? Because of this gift, God says, listen, I've got work that is prepared in advance for you to do. See, a lot of times when we're in the valley, when we're overwhelmed by brokenness, what we really want is God just to kind of lift us up and put us on the summit. 
But the reality is, he says, no, there's actually a mountain that you need to climb. And, and the reason is because there are others in this valley, and they need to know the way out. And I'm going to use your story, I'm going to use your life to show them the way, to, to show them the incomparable riches of my grace. See, what we have to come to grips with, church, is that though we have this incredible good news of what God has done, it does not remove us from the sphere of conflict. It, it doesn't take us off the battle lines. It doesn't take us off the mountain. We still have to climb. And there are going to be moments, as I'm sure there have been, and I'm sure that there will be, where we begin to be discouraged and we think to ourselves, I don't want to climb anymore. How much further do I have to go? How much longer before we're there? And that exhaustion and that concern and that worry is going to set in. And when that happens, I want you to remember this passage. I want us collectively as a body of believers to encourage one another in those moments to look back down on the valley and never lose sight of what God has done. Never lose sight of where we were, that we were dead and he made us alive and nothing changes that. And then when we embrace that truth, we are able to encourage one another, just take one more step because every step gets us closer to the summit. And when we live in that way, with that mindset, we become his handiwork. It means artistry. It's where we get our word poem. It's poema. God is creating this beautiful story in our lives with how we traverse up this mountain. And that story that we are declaring by maintaining that positive outlook, maintaining that faith is a story that points people to his incomparable grace. And that's the story we get to declare. That's the story we get to sing. And so let me encourage you today, church. Keep moving. Look back and remember what he's done. Look forward and know that one step gets you closer to where he is leading, to a summit that is guaranteed to have no more sorrow, no more pain, no more sickness, no more brokenness. And if we make this journey well, there will be this beautiful artistry that he creates with our lives that reveals his incomparable grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for who you are, that you are great in love and rich in mercy. We thank you that you have rescued us, that you've saved us. God, I pray that if there's anyone listening in this moment that has never taken that step of faith, to receive this gift of grace, that they would do so now. And that you would bring that sense of peace and understanding that only you can provide. God, for those of us that are weary as we climb this mountain of life, whatever struggles, whatever obstacles and hardships we may face, may we feel encouraged today, never losing sight of what you've done for us in Jesus and straining for what is ahead knowing that we can finish this race, we can climb this mountain because your grace is sufficient. God, use us. Use our lives to point 
to the incomparable grace which you have so freely given. Father, we love you, and we commit all these things to you and to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.